As, as Mark was reading that passage, I was just again blown away by the glory of God and revealed in this passage. What a passage. I confess, as I've been studying through this passage and thinking on this book and going through it in my study, I am a torn man right now. I, I, I want to continue Joshua. <laughs> I, I want to keep going in Joshua. and I. Uh, but then again, I want to go to the Psalms too. After Psalm 23 last week, and but yet Acts, Acts is calling my name to go back to it. Uh, what a book. You know, what a book. This revelation of God that we have in our hands. What a glorious book. What a great privilege it is to study it and learn from it. And I am so very thankful for God's Word. It is so sweet. If you ever question whether or not God loves you, all you need to do is pick up and start reading for a minute or two. That he gave us this revelation of himself is truly love beyond depth. And do you, can you believe it? I actually get to, my job is to study this and proclaim this all the time. I have the greatest job in all the world. And it is definitely a privilege. My study of the Old Testament over the last two months has been truly a Mount Sinai-like experience for me. I have seen the glories of God revealed in the pages of Scripture, and it has brought me to my knees, spiritually speaking. I have worshipped the Lord with a renewed and reignited passion. The Old Testament is often a misunderstood part of the Bible. But it was written down for our instruction, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 10, as we read in our New Testament passage. Looking over there real quickly, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, again, Paul says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. And then he completes the the concept, or repeats the concept in verse 11, where he says, Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Much of the Old Testament is filled with lessons on what we must avoid and why the world needed a Savior so badly. But occasionally, in the midst of the darkness, there are moments of light that are stunning, that it makes us stop and marvel at God's amazing grace as evidenced even in the Old Testament. Today we get a glimpse of one of these glories of grace today in the life of Joshua where God speaks to his servant, Joshua. The setting for this book is the people of Israel have been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Many of you know the story, right? Hopefully, if not, you need to read your Bibles. The wicked generation has all died off. 
The, the hero has even died, as seen in the opening verse of the passage. In verse 1, it says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying... Often when we think of the book of Joshua, we think the hero of the book is Joshua. But in fact, the hero of the book of Joshua and the time of Joshua is God. And to a lesser degree, Moses is heralded as a dead hero to remember and follow his example throughout the book of of Joshua. It's amazing how many times Moses is mentioned in the book of Joshua, even though he's dead. Moses is exalted, even here in this first verse, with this title that says he was the servant of the Lord. And that's literally the servant of Yahweh. Seventeen times in the book of Joshua, that phrase, that title is used of Moses. Moses is dead, but he's the servant of Yahweh. He's laid out as the example for Joshua to follow. We see here the baton is being passed from one leader to the next. But the new leader remains humble to the end. The debate over who wrote the book of Joshua may never be perfectly answered until heaven, much like the book of Hebrews. But I would not be surprised if it was Joshua. Joshua is called the servant or aid of Moses in this first verse. He's not called the servant of God like Moses. It is not until the end of Joshua's life that finally Joshua is called the servant of Yahweh. It's not until Joshua 21, 29, near the end of his life, that Joshua is called the servant of Yahweh, like Moses is mentioned 17 times that way. This is a great privilege to have that title. Do you understand? Many of us don't think on this and We might not think to be anybody's servant is a good thing, but to be the servant of Yahweh is the ultimate goal for all believers, right? I want to be called and classified and characterized as a servant of Yahweh. How about you? I want to be known as God's servant. We must go back some years to get a full sketch of this man Joshua, though, that comes on the scene. Joshua was was named Hoshea in Numbers 13.8, which means deliverance. Initially, that was his name. But Moses changed Hoshea's name to Joshua. And Joshua means literally Yahweh delivers or Yahweh saves. So he goes from delivers to Yahweh delivers. And again, the emphasis would be what? Joshua, you need to understand who's the one that brings ultimate deliverance. And in his name, he gets what very few get. In a world that was rejecting God, there were two, Joshua and Caleb, that got it. Those two understood that God was the deliverer. All the way back in Numbers 14, 6 to 10, you can see in those passages, after the spies come back, ten of them say, hey, let's bail. No way we're going into that land. There's giants there. But Joshua and Caleb, those two who spied out the land, 
tore their clothes, literally, notice, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good. If Yahweh is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Forty years before this time here in Joshua 1, these events are unfolding. And the people of God, quote unquote, were not liking Joshua and Caleb at that moment. But Joshua and Caleb appear to already have the courage and commitment to God enough to go into the land and take it. Man, there are some amazing little lessons here for us. What do they do? Well, Joshua and Caleb are the only two, along with Moses, that get it. Everybody else says, no way. And in light of that, everybody dies except those two. Forty years of watching people die. Forty years of walking around, watching. Oh, there went another one. Oh, there went another one. Another rejecter just died. Another rebellious person. Then we come to the book of Joshua. When we come to the book of Joshua, we think, okay, he's going to go into the land and it's going to just be a great, right? Well, here's what happens. Do you know that the book of Joshua most likely only covers around 15 years of history? Only 15 years of history. 40 years of walking around, wandering, watching people die. And then he goes into the land and he dies. Now, granted, he had some great success along the way, but this is like a flash. It's like a moment of pure glory in the midst of all this darkness. You look at the history, it's almost like looking up in the, in, the, in the night sky and seeing all the dark, but then there's a couple little flashes of light as the stars start to show. It's exactly what's happening here. Joshua is that beautiful picture of a little flash of light, or Hezekiah, another one. You can read them as you go through the Old Testament. See these little flashes of light. Caleb and Joshua saw great bodies of water, though, parted on each side of them twice. (laughs) They walked out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and saw it on both sides walk through, and they did it again when they went through the Jordan. Man, I don't know about you, but those are two of the guys that I want to meet when I get to heaven. I want to sit down with Joshua and Caleb. Wow. And this starts a great period of victory and joy. This bright light in the history of darkness that only lasts for 15 years roughly. So there has been a change in leadership. Moses, the servant of Yahweh, who had, at a moment of foolishness, rejected and rebelled against God, does not get to go into the promised land. So the leadership is given to Joshua instead. Joshua becomes the general in charge The king, that is the sovereign lord, steps up and gives his general orders. 
the sovereign gives his introductory orders to his new leader. That's what we see here. Today we're going to see the keys to success as defined by God. The ultimate key to success is total commitment to the Lord. Now I know when I say the word success, everybody in here goes, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, success. Again, success defined by God. That's crucial. Yet today we will see the keys to success from this truth revealed in Joshua 1. Our passage breaks down into two main parts in this introduction, in these beginning orders. There's the mission, and then there's the mandate. The mission is found in verses 2 to 5, and in verses 6 to 9 we see the mandate. Today we get a glimpse into the greatest moments, or one of the greatest moments in the history of the world. God's people are given marching orders, and God's people get a foretaste of what the kingdom to come will be like one day. God's people are given a mission, and their leader is given a mandate. And because Joshua, as a direction of his life, the rest of his life, follows these orders, it brings great victory. After the loss of I at I, it appears that the people go on a 31-0 victory campaign. Listen, do you understand? Because Joshua appears to obey what's given here, they rout everybody. It's like they go in and nothing can stand in their way. They win. It's done. And often they win by just walking around a, a city. Do you understand? It's, it's some of the strangest ways that God wins. And they win overwhelmingly. Success, great success, as defined by God and given by God. So let's start with these marching orders. Let's start with the, the mission. That's found in verses 2 to 5. You could summarize the mission with, Go get your land that I have given you. Go get your land that I've given you. Notice the Lord, that is Yahweh. Again, that's this, His name, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. With this, Joshua is directly addressed by the covenant-keeping God. God speaks to Joshua. And what we will learn, God did not say anything like what we hear from those name-it-and-claim-it word-of-faith movement people, preachers. He says something totally different than what they would say. Instead of name-it-and-claim-it, go get your land because, you know, just name that land and then go get it. That's not what he says. That's not what God says in his orders. Here's what his orders are to his, to his general. You ready? He says, go get it. But ultimately, his main mandate is, obey me through faith in me. That's what he says. Obey me. Notice God starts, though, with the, the mission. An announcement of Moses' death, his servant. Again, this is shocking if you think on it. A man considered his servant died and doesn't get to enter the promised land. In fact, God announces Moses is dead 
Now therefore, arise and cross. It, now therefore, arise and cross. If you get only one thing today, listen, this is something I want you to take home. Learn something from this little phrase, now therefore, arise and go. Moses is dead, now therefore, arise and go. Learn something from this phrase. God takes sin seriously. Again, the first time God told Moses to strike the rock, and God would give him water from the rock. And it happened, right? He struck the rock, water came. But the next time, God told Moses to speak to the rock instead of striking it, and God would give water. But Moses struck the rock again. I don't know about you guys, but when I think on that, I still think to myself, man, that doesn't seem like a tremendous sin. I mean, last time I hit the rock, you got what gave water. This time I'm supposed to speak to a rock. Now, we won't get into what all is going on there. There's probably a little bit more going on. I think our 1 Corinthians 10 passage highlights it. But let's just leave it at this. It is disobedience. One disobedient act. Just one. And that one act means Moses dies, then the people go in. Everybody else is dead. Moses died. Now go. One sin. Again. One act of rebellion kept him from going into the promised land. One act of sin by Uzzah meant his death. One act of rebellion resulted in Saul losing his kingdom. One act of lust led to David having a child die and blood never departing from his house. One sin, one lie by Ananias, and he drops dead at Peter's feet. One act of rebellion by Adam, and billions of people are born dead in sin. And billions go to hell. One sin. Wow. God takes sin serious. I don't think we take sin that seriously, do we? I think we need to, don't we? Oh, beloved, I pray that God will give us a fresh awareness of our sin. Help us to understand how sinful our sin is. And help us humbly seek our Lord all the time. Notice the mission is given in three parts. First, go take the land I have given you all. Arise, cross the river, this Jordan, you and all the, this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Again, they are standing on the banks of the Jordan River. You see... You can notice right here is the Dead Sea and the river runs right up through there. So they're standing right probably down in this area. Sorry, it's shaking, but you get the gist. They're standing on the banks of the river, as it says in Joshua 3.15. And God says, Arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to you, to them, 
to the sons of Israel. Verses 2 to 4 are addressed to all the people, but through Joshua. God is giving the mission for the people to Joshua to then give on to them. With verse 5 being Joshua's confirmation from God to the people. He is my leader in effect. God makes it clear in the mission orders, this is ultimately His doing. I am giving it to you, to them. Again, this is definitely not normative. Now, what do I mean by that? Contrary to the name it and claim it, people, we can just look at a piece of property. We can't, that is, look at a piece of property and say, God, give this to us in your name, and then assume he wants the same. No, I'm not going to use this passage as an opportunity for us to claim the building that we're in. And we're going to claim it and take it, no matter what. You know what that is? Garbage. I'm not a prophet, and God has not given me divine revelation that this building is ours, though I would like it. I do not believe we have that kind of gift. God has not given us that special revelation, so it's not normative. God makes it clear in the mission, though, that he was giving this to them. This is a special place, a special land, a land that God had promised to these people, and he was giving it to them. The sad thing is, the possession was short-lived and partial, as I mentioned. God kept his side of the promise, though. He had given it to them. The problem was that the people did not embrace the joy of their covenant relationship. There was great victory, but again, it was short-lived victory. But God's faithfulness was not questioned. It was not the problem with God. The problem was with what? The people. Only the short-lived commitment of a few or that generation appears to have led to victory. Notice the second part, though, of the mission. Go get the land I have established as yours. It says, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, every place you put your foot, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, towards the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Genesis 15 gives a further description of this territory. Remember, God had made these promises to Abraham. This was part of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The unilateral covenant. That is, that God made it and it was going to be guaranteed by God, ultimately. He had made this covenant commitment. It was ultimately contingent upon God carrying it out. And he says that in this passage where he says, I have given it to you. Literally, I have given it to you in the grammar or in, 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 in the syntax it would be uh, the idea that it's established, that it's yours. It's been established that it's yours. And I keep my promises, as God would say. I do not believe that they have fulfilled this completely yet, as evidenced by numerous references to this same land all the way through the minor prophets, especially Ezekiel 34, 13 and others. Also as evidenced by their 
prophetic promises of Leviticus 26, 14 to 45. You can write that down. Leviticus 26, 14 to 45. You can go back and look at that later. The idea is, is this, that all of it was given. The people were told to go in and get it and possess it, but they did not possess it all. In fact, they only took some of it. God was at this point giving them possessions, possession of the land. He was saying, take it, go get it. God says, I have established this land as yours. You are my children to do it. Again, I have determined it to be yours. And beloved, none of us thinks God did not mean literal here, by the way, do we? Does anybody in here, don't you think this is literal land? Everybody, there's not any debate. Anybody in here? No, it's literal land, right? So if the literal land is mentioned later on in the Bible, are we going to say, no, it's not literal then? I think we're going to say it's literal then too, right? By the way, that makes you a pre-mill. Genesis 13, 14, real simple. Look, and, and let me just give you, I'm going to give you a little bit of geography here. You see this river right here? Not that one, that one's named. See this one? It goes all the way down here. You know what that is? That's the Euphrates. That's the Euphrates River over here for you guys. See? That's Euphrates. So the land that they were given was all the way up to here. All the way up to here. They have never had that. They've never possessed all this. Now, could they defeat people back to this spot? Yeah, but they never possessed it. And it goes all the way down to here, all into the wilderness. Here's Lebanon back up here. And all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea and all the way down here. But ultimately, that means all of this area, all of this in here is theirs. And it hasn't happened completely. It's not that God didn't give it to them. But it's there. They had it, but they didn't take it completely. Ultimately, however, as you look through this and you go through this, the key to this is is, is that it wasn't supposed to be just for a period of time anyway. Not for just a short period of time. Look over at Genesis 13, 14 to 16. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants for a little while. Fifteen years. A couple years. Just a little bit of time. No, forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Okay, now why you you say, Mike, why in the world are you making such a big deal about this one little point in the middle of Joshua 1 about Joshua, I mean the land? Why are you making such faithfulness? It's the whole point. It's the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. He makes promises and he's going to keep them. And if the people of God had not taken it all, then one day it's going to happen. Why? Because God is faithful. We can count on Him. And that's the whole point of Joshua 1. Go take the land that I gave you because why? I'm faithful. I'm with you. 
I'm giving it to you. These are very important things, aren't they? If we say that these things are not true necessarily, or they go away, then what we're doing is, is we're, couldn't we say the same thing about our salvation? Couldn't we say, well, He promises to give us deliverance and to call us declared right, but we weren't real faithful. So, yeah, He's moved on to some other people. Oh, man, this is at stake. It's all God's characters at stake. That's why we die on these hills. That's why when we read Ezekiel, we see it, and it's obvious. That's Minor Prophet, by the way, much, much, much later. Again, we could zoom over this and miss this application point here. God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. Even when His people were disobedient, He gave glimpses and appetizers before the great feast. This is very much like us today. Members of the new covenant are partakers of some blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. No, we don't get the land and the physical victories over our enemies. But we get the abiding presence of God. We get to abide in Christ. We get to enjoy Him. We enter His spiritual rest now. No, we are not in the fullness of the kingdom. But one day we will be. But we are definitely feasting on some appetizers right now, aren't we? We're resting in Christ. We're enjoying the already part of the great plan of God. Yet there is more to come. Finally, notice the last part of the mission. Go get the land that I have given you because I am with you all. No man will be able to stand against you, literally, will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with you, Moses, with Moses, I will be with you and I will not fail you or forsake you. Oh, these are, these are beautiful verses. Do you understand? And again, Knowing God is faithful when he says these things. These are the greatest truths to hold on to for Joshua. It's the stuff you hold on to. He's saying, in effect, what? No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Do you understand what God is saying to him here? This is like saying, no one will oppose you, and if they do, they will die. This is God saying, Joshua, you are literally a true man of steel. (laughs) Nobody's going to beat you. No one will oppose you. When you stop and think about who is saying this and who he's saying it to, it's really astonishing, isn't it? The creator of the universe, the almighty, all-powerful God is saying to this little gnat of a guy, Joshua, this little man, you are going to always win. Nobody can come against you. Nobody will defeat you. Wow, is that confidence building? (laughs) You think Joshua went out of there like, You think after he heard this, he's like, man, I'm really good. No, but I do think he did this. 
<laughs> come on. Come on. Yeah? Come on. You Are you for us or against us? Even the commander that he meets later on of the army of hosts, that's why he asked the question. Because, look, I think he was afraid of him to a degree. He saw how big he was, but the reality was is if he was against him, what was he going to do? I'm <laughs> taking him down. I don't care. Nobody stands opposed to the army of God. And then it's like, no, I am the general. You are just the servant. Oh, 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 let me get down. He got it. It's not confidence in himself. It's confidence in God, as we will see. God, the creator, sustainer, and all-powerful God was saying, Joshua, you will rule and will always win. People will respect you just as they did Moses. Why? Why is success for a leadership a leader of God sure? Because just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You have me. I'm with you. My presence is there. We talked about this some last week, right? But this is arguably the single greatest truth being uh, about being in the covenant relationship with God. He is with us. He is working in us and through us and for our good and His glory. He loves us and knows us and delights over us. This is just glorious truth, isn't it? He walks with us. No, we aren't promised physical victories like Joshua. And this is a different application. No, we're not promised that if we walk into work and somebody slaps us in the face, that we're going to be able to knock them down and we win. No, we're not promised that. That's not normative. Greatest blessings Joshua had, though, were not the physical blessings. Listen, it wasn't the physical victories that lit Joshua up. Just like it's not the physical victories that light us up. What lights us up, what brings joy to our soul, is that we have the presence of God with us. We get to enjoy Him. We get to delight in Him. We get to know Him. We get to learn from Him. And no matter what circumstances that come before us, it doesn't matter. We have a new covenant relationship with our King and an abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we, therefore, want to what? Live for Him. Glorify Him by enjoying Him forever, as Piper would say. God promised He would not fail Him. God promises not to let Joshua down. When the battle at Ai goes south, and they get whooped, Joshua knows what the problem was. Joshua knows. He doesn't say, where you been, God? I think he gets it. There's something wrong with us. We've sinned. There's something with us. There's something wrong in the camp. It's our problem. These truths are invigorating, aren't they? If we comprehend and meditate on this, beloved, no. This passage is not saying God will give us a land to plot, like the plot in Israel. No, we're not Israel, and we're not going to go make a pilgrimage to Israel to stake our claim. And by the way, I think if you're going to be consistent, that's where you have to go if you're going to say the church has replaced Israel. Well, let's go to Israel and get our stake. 
Which tribe are you from? <laughs> yeah, it was a shot across the bow. But the character of God has not changed. Amen? Amen. And while we are not promised descendants and a land and a nation, do you understand? We're not promised children. Did you hear me? We're not promised a nation that would come out of us. We're not promised land like Abraham was. We are promised the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. We do have the presence of God within us. He will never leave us or forsake us just like he would never leave or forsake Joshua. Praise God, right? This does not mean that there will be no trials. After all, Moses had God's presence too, but he wandered in the wilderness for the last 40 years of his life with a bunch of wicked, rebellious sinners. Right? The principle of God's presence is definitely applicable to us. After all, Jesus said in his great commission, For lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. So what's our mission? We'll, we'll think on this, but ultimately I think it's there. It's to make disciples. And his ever-present work is promised in Romans 8, 13 to 17, to kill sin. There's your mission. Kill sin. Slay sin. In your own hearts, not in others, primarily. And we're sealed with the Spirit, as Paul states in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. So God gave the people their mission. Go, get the land that I have determined for you. You know, we have a mission too, as I would say, it would be to go and do the results of the same thing that Joshua was supposed to do. And that is this. It's, why was God telling them to go in and take the land? Ultimately, it was all about God's glory. It was all about showing off God. See, let me show you. You have these false gods, we're going to go throw these people out. And we're going to show you that there is only one true God. We're going to show you that God, the Yahweh God, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the one. So go in and take this land and show the world that I am the only God, the only true God. Guess what? We have that same mission. Do you understand that? That your life, no, you might not conquer a land or whatever that may be, but your life is to show off the glory of God to the world. You're supposed to be showing the world there is only one true God and He is the one that I follow. Look at me and hear from what the Word of God says. It's the same mission to glorify God through living for Him. We are called to proclaim the gospel for the purpose of making God known. And as I said to you guys yesterday, being a gospel proclaimer is not for a select few. It is what a Christian does. We don't march into lands and win battles, but we storm the darkness of the world with the word of truth and we proclaim the gospel saying, Jesus is your only way. The details of our battle may be different, but the ultimate goal is the same. The exaltation of the one true God. 
So we saw the mission. Next we see the general gets his own personal mandate. Y'all enjoying? I'm just loving this. This is great, isn't it? This is a great passage. Ah. So we saw the mission. Look at the mandate. Go get your land with the heart of a servant leader. That's his mandate. Go get your land with the heart of a servant leader. Literally, he says, be totally committed to the Lord in light of the mission. Look at it. Be strong and courageous. This is mentioned numerous times in Joshua 1.6, Joshua 1.7, Joshua 1.9, Joshua 1.18, Deuteronomy 31.7, Deuteronomy 31.23. This is mentioned numerous times. You think God wanted him to get this point? Oh, yeah, it's important. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. These words work together to form a unified thought. It appears the words together mean these. It, 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 it's a, it's, it, it encompasses a lot. It's be resolutely committed to me. Remain determined, steadfast. Be bold, be confident, be unshakable, be unmovable. God charges Joshua to be Totally committed to him. That's what he's saying when he says be strong and courageous. Be confident. Again, this is not confidence in self. It is co- and it's not confidence be- based on pride. It is confidence in God. Total commitment to God. Confidence in Yahweh. Boldness in the Lord, resolve for Him, steadfastness for His sake, unshakable trust, commitment to God. That's what He's calling Him to be. Be totally committed to me. Be strong and courageous. There's a huge difference between courage and reckless foolishness. Sometimes we call reckless foolishness courage. In our culture. But it's not. Biblical courage is based on experiential knowledge of God. See, if you know God. You ask sometimes why I'm just like yelling up here. And I'm like so into it. It's because I am absolutely sold out in the confidence of this word. I know it's true. And I know you must listen to it. And you better submit to it now. I'm overwhelmingly confident in this word. And in the God that gave it to us. It's not reckless foolishness. I'm not a crazy man up to here talking just, well, maybe. I think I'll get loud. Oh, this is... Confidence in the God who gave us the word. Reckless foolishness is rushing into things with no care for consequence or strategy or concern for God. God was not calling Joshua to be reckless. He was calling him to have total resolve and passionate commitment to him. To pursue God with all-out passion. With everything that he had. 
Now, this has an element of risk to it, doesn't it? Pursuing God with everything you have can be costly, can it? And bring a lot of people against you. But only to the level that it may cost us temporal things, not eternal things, correct? It's interesting, interesting to me that the same Hebrew word, root word, is used for Pharaoh's hardening of his heart. For the strong. You think, what? There's a negative word, but a positive word. Well, we can have hard hearts for God, or we can have hard hearts against God. I want to be passionately, doggedly, to the death, committed to God. I got a hard heart for God, not against Him. How about you? I want a heart committed to God that is unbreakable. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's why Joshua says that. With or without you. No, Vince. I don't care your response to this message. Uh, It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Ultimately, it does not determine whether or not I walk with God. With or without friends. Being persecuted or loved. Rich or poor. Healthy or sick, right? Resolve to serve God with all that we are, even if it means we must die. And I'm okay. Where is your confidence? Where is our confidence again? Our confidence is in God. God told Joshua, go get the land. So God is not saying, trust yourself. He's saying, trust me and go in total confidence in me. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. I'm going to get it done. Joshua gives these people the land. Be the general. That's what he's saying. Commander, servant, leader, give them what I have sworn to their fathers. In order to complete the mission, you must have a heart determined to serve me. Be strong and courageous in light of your calling. There is no room for wimps in this battle today either. No more wimps. No more crybabies. No more thin-skinned people. We don't need people who are constantly looking for an easy way out. Stand up. We need warriors. How many of you are with me? I'm serious. We need people like this. wants nothing else than to see people of God strong and courageous and dependent and determined for Him. It's the same call. He doesn't want weak, sin-burdened, worrying Christians. He wants strong and courageous people of God. Go get what God has given you. Souls. 
Go proclaim the gospel. Go make disciples. No, don't go get rich. Go glorify your king. Step up. So next we come to the heart of the passage. Oh. And arguably the key to the entire book and the Christian walk too. Be totally committed to the Lord in obedience through pursuit of Him and to victory. Only be strong and very courageous. Emphatic. Only be strong and very courageous. Very determined. Very totally committed. This attitude is revealed by obedience. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. So this law is probably the law of Moses found primarily in Exodus through Leviticus or, or through Deuteronomy. It is very important to know something. God's people were called to obey the law because they knew him. Some of them in there knew him and they were called to obey him as covenant-keeping, obedient relationship with God, they were supposed to keep and obey the law. In other words, God was not saying to Joshua, keep the law, obey these instructions so that you can be my people. Instead, because you're my people, obey these laws that I've given you, and therefore I will bless you. No, what he was talking about was Joshua's sanctification. He was calling him to be careful to obey. I gave you these commands for your good and my glory. They are meant to be obeyed for one primary reason. So that I can be known to the nations through your obedience. As you obey this law, then people will see that I am the Holy One true God that should be obeyed and I will be glorified to obey this law. Now, do we keep the Mosaic law? No, I don't think we do. We're under a new covenant and we have a new king, or that is King Jesus, and he has the law of Christ that we follow, we obey. The reality is, is it's sanctification for us too, right? This is such a misconception in our day and age. Obey is a four-letter word for our culture. It is. They hate it. But as God ha says to Joshua, the opposite is true. It's the best thing to do, right? Obedience. Obeying the king will bring victory for the commanders of the army. Matter, notice, the faithful obedience produces the fruit of success wherever you go. So that you may have success wherever you go. Again, God's ways of defeating the imminent enemy were so unorthodox in this book. Often he would do things in ways that you'd look and go, what? Wow, that's a way to kill an enemy. Send somebody through, kill 100,000 people. Boom, one night. Or they turn on each other and kill each other. All kinds of ways. And I think I know why God did it unorthodox-like or strangely or, or different. Ultimately, it was so that the people would understand that their strength came from him. Not themselves. I think that's why David killed Goliath. I think that's the whole point of that story, by the way. is all to show that God wins. God's powerful. 
really wasn't ultimately all about David. It was about God being the victor. I mean, he says, notice, so that you may have success wherever you go. Now, we can try to make this not about physical and material success because we're afraid of what the name it and claim it people will say. Or we can just take it as, this is the way God was working at that time. Which I'm okay with that, aren't you? I think the success is the land. To a degree, they're going to go in, they're going to defeat the enemy. That's success, I'm sorry. But friends, I think a plain reading makes it clear, doesn't it? So God says, in short, trust and obey me and you will win. Period. Now, some of us might think, oh, no, Pastor Mike is going off of the track. He's going to give us a message on the blessings that flow from obeying the Master. I do want to give a caution here before I fully endorse this truth that is applicable for us. Many of these promises of physical blessings and victories over physical enemies are not made to us. Those promises aren't made to you. So I think we have to be careful in our application. But... Let me tell you something, and I'm absolutely positive this is true. Trust and commitment to the Lord that expresses itself in obedience to Him always, always, always is the best place to be because we get to enjoy Him more. That's it. Obeying Him does bring blessing. It does. So obey him. (laughs) I'm all about obeying the king. How about you? Because I want his blessing. What is his blessing? Himself. And I want more of him. I want to know him. I want to enjoy him. Oh, dear ones, obedience is where fellowship with God is enjoyed. Do you hear me? Success not necessarily in finances, not necessarily in the workplace... Maybe not necessarily in saving your children. But ultimately success is a thriving relationship with God. A relationship that finds joy and satisfaction in Him. What is keeping you from enjoying the fullness of an abiding relationship with God? Could it be unrepentant sin? Could it be a harboring of bitterness towards somebody you know? Could it be that you are worried and stressed over things that instead of Trusting and enjoying God? Could it be that you find a reason to complain often, but thankfulness is far from you? That's not obedience. Name it what it is. When we worry, that is sin. When we complain, that is... Obedience leads to blessing. Obey Him and enjoy Him. So how is this attitude of total commitment and boldness for God fostered? And I won't get through all of it, but let's finish with this little point. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. How is this fostered, this attitude of obedience? It's fostered by abiding in the word of God. The word shall not leave your mouth. Why does God start with leaving the mouth, then talk about meditating on it? Wouldn't you think it would be the opposite? Meditate on it, 
and then don't let it get off your lips. Wouldn't you say it would be that order? Well, actually, those are two parallel concepts. They're the same thing. They're developing it. This is what happens in, in, in the Hebrew language often. See, the Israelite would meditate on the word by muttering it on their lips, reciting it over and over to get it and memorize it. It's like they're saying a little bit on their lips. So to have it on your lips is to meditate on it. So both are the same. In fact, the Hebrew word for meditate is associated with muttering. The idea was on your tongue as you are attempting to put it in your heart. Man, don't we need this? (laughs) We need to do this. We need to meditate on the word daily, day and night, all the time. No, we're not obligated to keep the Mosaic Covenant, but there are still many great applications for us. We need to know the Word of God. We need to hide the Word of God deep in our soul. I've heard it so often from many of you. You're talking to me and you say, and I, I get to the question, that little question, so did you do your devotions this morning? Did you spend time in the Word before you got out of your bed? No, I do that at night, right before I'm going to bed. I love you guys, but when that happens, listen, you went your whole day up to that point without thinking on the Word? I'm not saying this is like, you know, ooh, there's this line, if you're not spending time in the Word before you get out of bed, you are a failure. I'm just saying what you put in your mind is what you become. What you think on is what you will be. That's what he's getting at here. If you go through days without meditating and memorizing Scripture and putting that stuff in your head, guess what? You're going to look just like the world. Because what goes into your mind, the world puts you, bombards you all the time. Isn't it? Constantly. Everywhere you go, it's bombarding you with truth. Everything from video games to movies to sports. It's there. It's coming on you all the time. And you become what you put in your mind. That's what he's getting at to Joshua. This is what he's saying. Look, how are you totally committed to me? This is how. You put the word of God in your soul. You hide it deep in your heart. When you hide it deep in your heart, you're going to obey me. And there's going to be success. Y'all get it? Sorry, I didn't get all the way through it. I tried. You get the gist, right? What a passage. Y'all with me? Don't you want to keep going, Joshua? (laughs) It's like we're going to have to add another night where I'm going to preach through Joshua too. What a God. What a mighty, powerful God. And what a book, right? Let's pray. Father, you are kind and gracious and loving and good and holy and just and powerful and compassionate and merciful and all these things Lord we just praise you we worship you we honor you we exalt you we love you we are confident in you we pray Father that you will use us to show yourself off We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior.
Amen.